Have you ever wondered how much of that movie you just saw actually happened? My name is Dan Lefebvre, and I'm the host of Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares Hollywood with history. On each episode, we'll tackle a different movie or TV show that claims to be based on a true story and separate fact from fiction. So when you're ready to learn how much actually happened, search for Based on a True Story in your favorite podcast app of choice or find it over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. In October 1727, Nader Kuli Beg, a newly promoted general within the ranks of Shah Thomas II's army, the exiled king who rode alongside him, together led a modest force of 7,000 Safavid soldiers 20 kilometers south from Sangan, a small city in the rugged and semi-arid landscape of southern Khorasan. Tendrils of smoke rising up into the clear blue sky in the distance behind them, emanating from the recently conquered fortress, having succumbed to a fierce bout of cannon fire and the quick-thinking commander that in a short time had proven himself invaluable to Shah Tamasp's future goals. Attempting to reclaim his birthright, the Safavid Iranian Empire, that had fully collapsed five years prior under the weight of a long list of internal and external foes that had in the process also shredded much larger Safavid armies to pieces. This including the Afghan Abdali tribe, whose fierce Shah cavalry, arguably among the finest in all of Persia, had enabled them to overtake huge portions of the eastern Safavid domains, including the city of Herat, the base of operations from which they were spilling over into Khorasan. The Abdali, in response to the unexpected takeover of their fortress at Sangan, sending an overwhelming force of 20,000 cavalry to re-establish dominance. Confident in their ability to run the Safavids over like grass, as they had repeatedly done in pitched battles over the past years. Though failing to understand that this small Safavid loyalist army was quite different from the larger ones that had preceded it. With the majority of its troops, though relatively inexperienced, being infantry-based, armed with muskets as their primary weapon, and methodically trained in their use. And even more importantly, serving under this newly minted commander, the now 39-year-old Nader, a former poverty-stricken youth turned soldier, turned warlord, and now general. A gifted veteran of countless smaller squabbles and conflicts, who visibly appeared as though he had been born for this brutal vocation, with an attitude to match. A man who cut an imposing figure with a tall, sturdy frame and full black beard, and a loud voice that commanded attention and obedience who surprisingly hadn't called for a retreat upon learning that 20,000 Afghans were bearing down on their position. But rather, to the disbelief of all, he commanded his small army to move forward to meet the Abdali head-on, selecting an open landscape no less, typically a huge benefit for cavalry to overrun any infantry encountered. But neither was resolute in his conviction to make a stand in this place 
with his officers and soldiers quickly learning that Nader was intent on engineering the battlefield from that of a blank canvas into one that would accentuate their strengths. Roaring at his soldiers to dig, shovels immediately breaking through dry ground to begin construction of lines of trenches and other earthenwork defenses to protect the infantry, with cannons positioned in the back. Understanding from first-hand experience the tactics of their brave, bordering on reckless adversaries that were days away. This was to be the first real test of the novel tactics that his calculating mind was conceiving, and Nader wanted them to attack. Welcome to the Warlords of History podcast. I'm your host, Mark Pimenta. Part 2 of the series delving into the astounding lifetime of Nader Shah, the last of the great Asiatic military conquerors, in the spirit of Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, and Amir Timur before him. A brilliant battlefield commander, regularly faced with overwhelmingly difficult odds and situations throughout his life, but that managed to overcome each, one by one, with unrivaled ferocity a sentiment that fits exceptionally well understanding his lowly starting point, one of abject poverty and insignificance, through which he was subsequently hardened by his chaotic and unforgiving environment, driving him to reach for greater heights, heights typically reserved for those with a royal or god-ordained lineage. With Nader slashing through these traditions to grow in stature, and proceed to reverse the fortunes of 18th century Iran, salvaging it from internal and external threats, and later assume control of the Persian throne for himself, fashioning it into a terrifying militaristic state. However, before we go further into this episode, it's time for a quick shout out, because I have the distinct honor of welcoming Tyler F. as the newest addition into the ranks of the Warlords of History Immortals. Thank you for directly supporting my efforts through the Warlords of History Patreon page, and for helping to cover the costs associated with making this podcast happen. Now, before jumping straightway into this episode, you may first want to give part one a listen, which will be extremely helpful to put everything into perspective in terms of what we'll be covering off here. But here's a quick little summary to help bring you up to speed or refresh your memory as to where we last ended up. In the last episode, we explored the history of Persia in the lead-up towards Nader's lifetime and the turbulent environment surrounding his early days and exploits. A history steeped in instability and violence, particularly following the Mongol invasions of the 13th century, leaving Iran fragmented with the pieces exchanging hands between those attempting to quell it into submission. These conquerors and warlords, however, failing to cement this into any semblance of longer-term nation-building. That ultimately, in the early 1500s, allowed the Safavid dynasty, through the spear tips of its formidable Kizilbash cavalry, to take charge of the lands that would become known as the Safavid Iranian Empire doing what no one had been able to do in the preceding 300 years, ushering in a period of relative stability. 
an era that lasted for almost 200 years, into the late 1600s, facilitating upswings in commerce, trade, wealth, and cultural growth. Of course, though, far from being a completely peaceful time, creating some internal upheaval along the way due to the long-standing policy of Safavid monarchs forcibly converting the populace to Twelver Shiism, also acting as one of the factors inciting conflict with Safavid Iran's neighbours, the leaders of which predominantly followed Sunni Islam. This, among the other things that nations and empires typically squabble over, such as land, power, and influence. These including the Uzbek Khanats in the northeast, the Mughal Empire in the east, but none more powerful than their arch-rival, the Ottoman Empire in the west. Yet despite these challenges, also possessing less in terms of population and resources, economic and military might, especially when compared to the Mughals and Ottomans, the Safavid Iranian Empire fared quite well thanks to a line of talented shahs, or kings, through the first 150 years of the dynasty. A lineage that unfortunately frayed at the edges considerably towards the late 1600s and early 1700s, due to a poisonous court culture that took root and began churning out lethargic and incompetent shahs, who routinely neglected their duties, focusing on the many pleasures of their harems instead completely disconnected to the realities of the outside world and the challenges being faced by the populace beyond the palace walls in the capital of Isfahan. Monarchs that increasingly handed off their responsibilities to nobles and royal administrators, who were all too eager to take on these powers for personal gain, greedily exploiting the populace with oppressive taxation and corruption that were woven into rot the core of the Safavid Iranian Empire. And compounding the dire situation was a royal army that had been woefully neglected, not modernized with advanced gunpowder units, artillery and firearms, and with its discipline degrading into shambles, increasingly hard-pressed to deal with internal insurrections and defend its people, borders and trade routes from outside threats. All of this forming for us the world which Nadar was born into, struggling to survive as an insignificant youth within his poverty-stricken and unforgiving environment in Khorasan, the embattled region at the northeastern edge of the Safavid Iranian Empire. Bringing us to where we had left things off in the last episode, in 1716, with Nadar in the service of Baba Ali Beg the Safavid governor of the city of Dargaz in Khorasan, wherein Nadar had distinguished himself greatly as an exceptional soldier and military leader, particularly in the use of firearms, fueling his rise to become what was effectively Ali Beg's right-hand man and the captain of the small regional militia, estimated at around three to 4,000 strong, that included a contingent of musketeers. This while also gaining Ali Beg as a father-in-law, along with increased recognition and some regional fame due to his successes thus far. Early signs of Nader's strategic and tactical military brilliance, in particular being put on display in the defense of Dargaz against an Uzbek warlord known as the Fox, who descended upon the city at the head of 8,000 cavalry in 1714 
with Nather, although heavily outnumbered, leading his estimated force of 500 musketmen to play a pivotal role to quash the Uzbek incursion. And as a quick side note, I think that there's some additional credit that Nader is owed here, because considering these early successes within the context of his austere upbringing, it's quite certain that he would have not been exposed to any type of formal education, much less military theory training. And although he may have learned some basics from his father-in-law Ali Beg during his tenure in his service, evident by his later many victories, often also faced by overwhelming odds, it appears that Nader had a natural talent for this type of livelihood. Learning, improvising, and adapting his tactical approach as he fought and gained experience in combat. And together with Ali Beg, clearly doing some things right in Dargaz and its surrounding area. Because Dargaz was quite stable, being well defended by this capable duo. Though this is underscored by the point that Dargaz was just one small city and area within a much greater sphere of uncertainty. In the wider region of Khorasan, that was racked with discontent and instability, a sentiment also applicable to much of Safavid Iran, especially at the edges of the empire. In large part, and as covered in the last episode, due to the ineffectual Safavid shahs that ruled over the empire at this time, such as that of Shah Sultan Hussein, who occupied his hours with the intrigues and the pursuits of pleasure only found within the walls of the royal palace in Isfahan, severely neglecting the fighting readiness of the royal army and leaving the business of ruling and administrating the empire in the hands of others, prominent religious figures and nobles, sometimes even selling offices to the highest bidder instead of placing people into positions based on merit. A recipe that, and no surprises here, would eventually produce disastrous consequences for the Safavid dynasty. However, as the year 1716 dawned, the Iranian empire nonetheless continued to limp along. And although plagued with issues and rebellions, this, of course, escaped the notice of Shah Sultan Hussein, who had no real understanding of the chaos that was about to take hold of his realm. Because, due to the mismanagement of the empire, internal rebellions were becoming a regular feature of the landscape, but nothing too serious that couldn't easily be stamped out. That is, until an Afghan tribal rebellion that had sparked in Kandahar, in modern southern Afghanistan but historically marking the eastern limits of Safavid Iran, where it bumped up against the Mughal Empire. A budding revolt that was allowed to fester and worsen, that had kicked off 12 years earlier in 1704, when Nader was just beginning in Ali Beg's service. That primarily arose due to two main factors. The aforementioned corruption and oppressive taxation that Kandahar's inhabitants had been subjected to, and throwing more gas on the fire, Safavid clerics demanding a renewed push to forcibly convert the Sunni-based tribes in and around Kandahar to Shiism. The Safavid court sending a representative called Gurgan Khan to act as the viceroy of Kandahar and to oversee the re-establishment of Safavid authority and the conversion of the populace a move that in itself was quite bewildering, 
because of note is that Gurgen Khan was in fact formerly known as George XI, a Georgian monarch that had previously led a failed rebellion to free the Georgian kingdom from the domination of the Safavid Empire, but that was surprisingly pardoned and then tasked with bringing Kandahar to heel. This, if nothing, demonstrating the dysfunction of Safavid politics at the time. Gurgen Khan entering Kandahar at the head of a force of Georgian soldiers in 1704 to immediately take steps to crush the revolt, while commencing a ruthless and rather brutal approach to convert the Afghans to Shia Islam. So who exactly were these people that had begun a simmering rebellion in Kandahar? Historically, known as Afghans, the modern naming convention associated with this group would be Pashtuns, made up of many different tribes that are indigenous to southern Afghanistan and northwestern Pakistan, the bulk of whom during Nader's lifetime were divided into two main tribal confederations, the Abdali, today called the Durrani, and the Gelzai. And in 1709, it being the Gelzai, under its leader Mirwaz Hotak, that formed the spearhead of the response against Gurgan Khan and his severe governorship of Kandahar, who by this point had taken on the role of something more like a debauched regional king rather than a Safavid regional representative. With Mirwaz Hotak concocting an impressive ambush and having some nearby tribes refuse to pay their taxes, thus luring Gurgan Khan and the majority of his forces out of the city to render the expected and predictable harsh response, but then falling upon them with his hidden Afghan cavalry, which was widely known to be among the best shock cavalry in Persia, and that decimated the unprepared Safavid army to a man, before boldly declaring Kandahar's independence from the Safavid empire and preparing for an elaborate defense of the city. In anticipation of the Safavid response, in sending another army to retake the city that took ponderously long to organize. An estimated 30 to 40,000 troops finally marching out from Isfahan to Kandahar in late 1712 to set siege to the city, which held up remarkably well with the Safavids unable to make any headway and that a year in were forced to call off the siege in retreat but then making the fatal mistake of dividing their army when marching back to Isfahan, using different routes, a mistake that Mirwaz Hota keenly seized upon, sending his exceptional cavalry out to cut each retreating contingent to pieces. The original Safavid army reportedly reduced to a mere 100 souls that made it back to Isfahan, a complete and thorough disaster but one that emboldened the Afghans to change their strategy from defense to offense, sensing that the Safavid realm was ripe for the taking. Aided by the understanding that the Safavid army, whose fighting readiness had been severely neglected by its careless monarchs, had lapsed to become a force of dubious morale, discipline, and overall quality, resulting in Mirwas Hotak at the head of his motivated Galzai warriors marching out westwards from Kandahar, deeper into Iran, to begin expanding his newly formed kingdom, an advance that saw a number of early successes, but that temporarily stalled in 1715, due to Mirwas's death. 
The unexpected successes of the Gelzai, however, also emboldening the other large Afghan tribe, the Abdali, to try their hand at carving out a kingdom of their very own at the expense of the Safavids. In 1716, organizing an army of equally effective Afghan horsemen and pushing out from their lands near Kandahar, moving 600 kilometers northwest to conquer the city of Herat, and from there looking to gain control of more Persian territories and cities, making incursions into southern Khorasan and soon threatening the regional capital city of Mashhad. This event being one especially important to Nader's story, because this would eventually result in Nader being drawn into the wider maelstrom, but then cast into limbo. A sequence that began as the Abdali began inching their way into Khorasan, forcing the regional Safavid governor based in Mashhad to cobble together an army to defend Khorasan against the insurrection. A force that included Nader's father-in-law, Baba Ali Beg, who collected the majority of Dargaz's militia and marched them off to Mashhad, about 250 kilometers due south from Dargaz, while leaving Nader in charge of things in his absence, along with approximately 500 troops. In the weeks that followed, however, Nader receiving the unfortunate news that disaster had struck the Khorasani army, having been caught by a surprise Afghan attack, that among its heavy losses, had included Ali Beg, with Nader also learning that despite the obvious confidence that Ali Beg had placed in him, and the fact that he was his son-in-law, that Nader was not going to be permitted to inherit Ali Beg's governorship of Dargaz, largely owing to his insignificant lineage, and was instead required to accept a subordinate role under the command of the Safavid governor in Mashhad who for now ordered Nader to remain in Dargaz and maintain the defense of the city and its surrounding area. Which Nader successfully managed to do, despite having an extremely thin amount of resources at his disposal. Again, an estimated 500 troops at most, but given his obvious capabilities, steadily gaining more regional fame. Dargaz as before being one of the few locations along the eastern Safavid Iranian borderlands that was doing comparatively well under the guidance of Nader, who was yet again proving himself to be a more than capable leader. In contrast to the multitude of precarious situations that were descending into potential empire-ending outcomes, which, to help put this into perspective, included all of the following by 1719. The Abdali Afghans in control of the city of Herat and parts of southern Khorasan. The Galzai Afghans, whose insurrection had previously stalled, but had recently been invigorated, gaining immense steam under Mirwas Hotak's son, Mahmud Hotak, who was not only in control of Kandahar, but had resumed their westwards push deeper into Iran's interior. Adding to this, were the Uzbek Khanates to the northeast of Khorasan, seeing the opportunity of a land grab, and a huge rebellion that had popped up on the opposite side, across the Iranian Empire in its northwestern domains, an area called Dagestan, that today forms the southernmost tip of Russia. Lastly, to top it all off, were foreign nations, including Russia and the Ottomans, 
that started paying much closer attention to how Iran was quickly unraveling, making preparations and biding their time to enter the equation and carve out prime pieces of the carcass for themselves. Let's just say that things were not looking good for the Safavids at this point, with the worst still to come. Now, it's not as if the Safavids were completely powerless and not trying to keep things from falling apart, with Shah Sultan Hussein finally popping his head over top the palace walls to survey the multitude of situations that had gotten way out of hand. However, the reality is that he was not only late in reacting, but also simply too ill-groomed and ill-prepared to deal with these unfolding disasters. Not to mention that the solid foundation that the Safavid Persian Empire had originally been built upon, with loyal and capable administrators and military leaders installed to positions based on merit, that this was now in ruins. So much that most efforts made to address the many problems facing the empire went largely wasted a notion that would again later become evident when a prominent Safavid noble by the name of Malik Mahmud Sistani was assigned to the regional capital city of Mashhad to take charge of the deteriorating state of affairs in Khorasan in 1719. But interestingly, not because he was incapable. In fact, far from it, because Sistani was a rather sharp and astute governor with a pretty good eye for talent soon picking out Nader, among a handful of others for positions within his regional army. Though, as a quick side note, one area of exception in terms of his eye for military talent was, ironically, those he selected for its top tiers, because Sistani was also a political player, and whereas he recruited talented people such as Nader for the middle ranks of his forces, the top positions were still typically reserved for nobles and others of the aristocracy. Nevertheless, what's clear is that Nader, during this time, continued to separate himself among those within Sistani's service as an outstanding commander, in particular gaining immense favor early on, when the 31-year-old seasoned warrior volunteered for an assignment against an incoming force of Uzbeks, who were aiming at sacking Mashhad an encounter that sadly, the details of which are almost completely unknown, with the exception of the outcome, with the Safavid forces convincingly routing the Uzbek expedition, and neither again distinguishing himself in the encounter. In the aftermath, Sistani rewarding Nader with a taste of the higher military posts that he was loudly seeking, promoting Nader to a more prominent position, called Min Bashi, in command of 1,000 Tofangchi, the musket-bearing troops. Nader, taking on this role with zeal, laboriously drilling them into an exceptional group of musketeers, but also training them as an adaptive force that could also fight as Kizilbash-mounted warriors, acutely understanding the underlying tribal roots of the men under him, many of which would have also belonged to the Afshar tribe as well. Nader's tribal people. And over the next year into 1720, Sistani regularly calling upon Nader and his contingent time and time again, using them as workhorses to fight in smaller engagements all around Khorasan, against Uzbeks, other ambitious warlords, 
and also in skirmishes against the Abdali Afghans in the southern reaches of the region. Nader and his force being one among a number of other similar units that Sistani had organized and effectively utilized to firmly re-establish control of Khorasan in the name of the Safavids by mid-1720, thereby freeing Sistani to concentrate on a more ambitious objective, desiring to reconquer the city of Herat from the Abdali Afghans, and ordering Nader and his troops to be placed under the authority of a general by the name of Safi Kuli Khan, who ended up leading the army into a complete disaster of a campaign. The key battle occurring near Kafir Kala, a town in modern northeastern Afghanistan, about 120 kilometers east of Herat, with Safi Kuli reportedly misdirecting his gunners and decimating his own infantry, doing half of the job of the Afghans for them the cavalry of which then charged in and easily broke what remained of the Safavid army. Resulting in, at least according to some accounts, Safi Kuli Khan losing his mind in the midst of the battle and blowing himself up on a powder barrel in despair. Although of note is that Nader somehow managed to extract the bulk of his group out of the mess and return them safely to Mashhad. And I believe that it's at this point, upon Nader's return to Sistani, that a huge rift opened up between the two men, being that Nader, having again proven himself, despite the recent debacle of a campaign, was once again passed over for a leadership role in Sistani's regional army. The honor instead going to another unproven Safavid noble that Sistani was trying to gain favor with with other historical accounts inferring that the new general may have also been a relative of Sistani. Regardless, this decision boiling Nader's irritation over, compounded by all the previous instances he had been overlooked for promotion to more prominent positions and commands, despite having been used as a workhorse and performing admirably throughout every encounter, resulting in Nader's noted temper going on full display aggressively shouting complaints aimed at the governor and questioning Sistani's judgment about those he had placed at the highest ranks of the military pyramid. Some historians stating that Nader even went as far as to make a failed assassination attempt on Sistani. But I'm not really convinced by this, because had this been the case, there's a good chance that the no-nonsense Sistani would have at the very least dismissed Nader from his service or what's even more likely, had him executed right then and there, rather than having opted for a much less severe penalty, in shipping Nader far off to the side, where he couldn't be a nuisance, yet still be of use to the Khorasani governor. In late 1720 or early 1721, sending Nader and his 1,000 troops to an isolated frontier outpost called Kalat some 150 kilometers to the north of Mashhad. Kalat, described in the book The Cambridge History of Iran as a saucer-shaped plateau, surrounded by a rim of limestone cliffs, sheer on the outside and rising from 700 to 1100 feet in height, the perfect natural fortress. Indeed, out of the way and the perfect location for a small force to oversee and protect the northern frontier, 
but also withstand any potential attacks if assailed by much greater numbers. A decision that Sistani would come to regret, and that into the future would prove to be a huge source of headaches for him. Because in the months that followed, the rift between Nader and Sistani widened into a full-scale split between the two men. Triggered by Sistani, who, sensing that the way the wind was blowing, and believing the collapse of the Safavid dynasty to be imminent, took it upon himself to strike a deal with the Gelzai Afghan leader, Mahmud Hotak. A deal wherein Sistani would be recognized as the ruler of an independent kingdom in Khorasan, in exchange for supporting Mahmud Hotak in his quest to topple the Safavids and replace them as the Shah of Persia. Being that, as mentioned a little earlier, Mahmud Hotak, now firmly entrenched in his late father's position, by December 1721 had managed to put together an impressive army of 54,000 Afghan warriors that marched out from Kandahar, aiming 1,600 kilometers west at the Iranian capital of Isfahan. Through early 1722, making impressive progress, quickly conquering city after city, setting up garrisons to maintain and protect its supply lines all the way back to Kandahar, with Safavid governors either surrendering without a fight or offering up little more than inept military responses. By March 1722, the frantic Afghan pace enabling them to reach a town called Gulnabad, a mere 20 kilometers from the walls of Isfahan. Mahmud Hotak, arriving in the area at the head of his forward army of 20,000 mostly Afghan cavalry, since some of his original 54,000 troops had been garrisoned in the cities and regions they had recently overtaken, with some casualties also incurred along the way. The Safavids using this time to desperately scramble in a last-ditch effort to salvage the bleak situation, pulling together a large force estimated at 40 to 50,000 that had gathered at Isfahan. That Shah Sultan Hussein, while watching from the safety of the city walls, subsequently commanded out of Isfahan's gates, believing this to be his opportunity to crush the smaller Afghan army by virtue of his overwhelming numbers. But making the dire mistake of overestimating his army's strength and conviction, and underestimating the tenacity and bravery bordering on recklessness of the Afghan tribal warriors. According to eyewitness accounts as put forward by Ali Jalali in his book, Afghanistan, a military history from the ancient empires to the great game, warriors so intent on victory at all costs that if an Afghan cavalryman attempted to retire from battle after an arm was hacked off, he would be ordered under the threat of death to return to the fray and tear the enemy with his teeth if the remaining arm was severed rather than flee the field. This battle of Gulnabad rapidly going horribly awry for the Safavids, when the quick maneuvering Afghan cavalry had managed to inflict some rather severe losses on the Safavids during their early stages of the encounter, to the tune of 2,000 casualties. That amazingly, despite still outnumbering the Afghans by more than 2 to 1, caused the Safavid army to buckle and fold clearly showing the lack of commitment, quality, and discipline that the Iranian army had fallen into. 
and that scattered in a disorganized retreat, enabling their swift pursuers to change the encounter from a battle into that of a slaughter, with some estimates stating losses as high as 15,000 Safavid troops slain. Clearing the way for the Afghans to surround and set siege to the grand Iranian capital of Isfahan, the city that was commonly referred to as half the world, owing to its majestic size and scale. A siege that would turn into a horrific six-month-long affair, wherein the Afghans tightened their noose around the city with an iron grip, starving its inhabitants into submission. And with Safavid authority and its government so completely broken down by this point, beyond repair really, there were no other armies that could be summoned to attempt breaking through the encirclement and save its monarch. Or its people. With more than one out of every six people of the city's 600,000 inhabitants dying due to famine. Towards the end, forced to eating whatever they could find. Rats, leaves and bark from trees, leather softened by boiling, some even resorting to cannibalism. A level of misery that Shah Sultan Hussein could no longer ignore. On October 25, 1722, emerging from the royal palace to make his way through Isfahan's once marvelous streets, now littered with bodies and refuse, and eventually through the gates of the city to surrender and personally crown Mahmud Hotak as the Shah of Persia, thus ending the 220-year reign of the Safavids and the beginning of the Hotak dynasty. And while the deposed Sultan Hussein was spared for now, he, along with almost all of his offspring, would be executed in the years that followed, as the new conquerors tried to erase any potential challenges to their rule. When I think back about my understanding of these types of events, before more fully immersing myself into the study of history, I had always naively assumed that the conquering part would be the most difficult aspect of overtaking a kingdom or empire. Which may have also been the assumption that Mahmud Hotak was operating under. Because yes, he was certainly in power now, no question about that. But up arose another more important question, in terms of how he was going to rule Iran. A question with a more elusive answer, given the following considerations. 1. Because Mahmud Hotak was an Afghan, and although technically part of the Safavid Empire, for all intensive purposes, the Afghans were considered to be outsiders by the majority of all the most influential groups within Iranian society. These including the Turkic-speaking military elite, the Persian-speaking administrative elite, and those commonly referred to as the third force, the Ghulams, as mentioned in the previous episode, the slave soldiers originating from the areas in and around the Caucasus that had since become an added layer to the highest military and administrative classes. The second factor impacting their future prospect for a lasting rule, being that the Afghans followed Sunni Islam, Mahmud Hotak was not accepted as a legitimate monarch by much of the Iranian empire, especially with Twelver Shiism now being so deeply rooted into the fabric of society. All of this meaning that the only way that the Hotaks could hope to hold on to power was through military force, a path that would prove unsustainable over the long run, 
because the Afghans only had so many troops that they could call upon, a finite amount of manpower at its disposal, while attempting to wrestle the entirety of Iran into submission, while also needing to ensure that their homeland of Kandahar remained secure. Demands that would ultimately result in their ambitions falling to a death by a thousand cuts. Their manpower constraints thus preventing the Hotaks from conquering all of Safavid Persia in the years that followed, although they did manage to overtake quite a number of territories. And due to the lack of central authority, this period also being notable for warlords popping up all over the place throughout Persia, along with more concerning incursions from mighty foreign powers, in particular the Ottomans and Russians that jumped into the storm looking to take advantage of the chaotic situation. In fact, working together to do so, confirmed in an agreement called the Treaty of Constantinople, signed in 1724, splitting northwestern Iran between them, but also with the Russians, led by Peter the Great, conquering swaths of territory in northern Iran, in what would be called the Russo-Iranian War of 1722-1723, and the Ottoman Empire, led by Ahmed III, who invaded and acquired huge pieces of western Iran, pushing through all the way to the edge of the Zagros Mountains, which today forms much of the border between modern Iran and Iraq. Oh, and adding to the long list of problems the Hotaks were facing, was an 18-year-old Safavid prince, by the name of Tamas II, the son of the recently deposed Shah Sultan Hussein, who slipped through the fingers of the Hotaks and managed to escape Isfahan during the siege of the doomed city. Arguably, the least of their concerns, given Safavid authority in Iran being in shambles. However, Tamas being a name and figure that you'll want to remember, since he will factor in greatly in the coming years, playing a key role in Nader's future rise to prominence. A rise that was still some time away, with the Hotaks clearly in the driving seat as 1723 dawned, occupying much of Iran, but unbeknownst to the new Afghan rulers, also hurtling them blindly towards a cliff. Because while the Hotaks had enjoyed a number of early successes in their bid to take over the empire that the Safavids had presided over, all the aforementioned struggles, conflicts, and internal discontent were making for an extremely difficult environment for them to consolidate power in, while steadily draining the strength of the Afghan military. The strain of these heavy burdens also taking a toll on Shah Mahmud Hotak, who deteriorated both physically and mentally, resulting in his murder in 1725 at the hands of his cousin, Ashraf Hotak who usurped the Persian throne for himself, a move that also ended up straining relations with the Afghan leadership back in Kandahar, now under the control of Hussein Hotak, a brother of the recently assassinated Mahmud. As I'm sure you can tell by now, yes, definitely confusing, and also yes, things were certainly getting messy for the Hotak dynasty in Iran, and fast. By 1726, the new king, Ashraf Hotak, struggling greatly to hold on to power, with an estimated 25,000 Afghan warriors under his direct command. A tall order for such a small group. Made worse, 
by Kandahar's refusal to send troop reinforcements to replace the dwindling manpower, lost to casualties and attrition. And while Shah Ashraf Hotak did manage to secure some allies within Iran, as mentioned earlier, these were of dubious loyalty to their new Afghan overlord. As quickly as they had arisen, Afghan power in Persia was starting to unravel. Though of note is that despite this, there were not yet any other internal factions within the splintered empire that possessed enough military strength to even make an attempt on overthrowing them. But what of Nadar, you might be thinking? What had he been up to during this five-year period from 1721 to 1726? Well, he essentially became a warlord in Khorasan, one of several that didn't go along with Malik Mahmud Sistani's plan of making Khorasan his own independent kingdom. And although Sistani held the lion's share of Khorasan, much of the region had since fragmented under a series of military strongmen that were attempting to carve out their own little kingdoms. Nadar being one of these, jostling with others in the area for more lands and influence. In case you're interested, I'll include a map on my website that shows a breakdown of who was holding what. A period during which, for the most part, Nadar did quite well for himself. Secure from attack in his base at Kalat, the natural fortress acting as an exceptional platform from which to descend down and conduct raids and other operations in the surrounding area, enabling Nadar to secure ownership of the city of Dargaz, the lands of his tribal people, about 100 kilometers to the northwest of Kalat, and keep his few domains well protected, thereby adding to his substantial fame and reputation, which also helped to attract more recruits to his cause. That increased from 1,000 to about 3,000 troops. Not a large group by any means, but one that he relentlessly trained into a fierce strike force, adept at both cavalry combat and unmounted as firearm-bearing infantry. On a more personal note, also welcoming his first two sons into the world, Reza Koli Mirza and Morteza Mirza, who would later assume prominent roles in Nadar's court and military. Now, at this juncture, one question that keeps reverberating in my mind, however, is what was his motivation in breaking with Sistani and becoming an independent warlord? Were these the actions of a proud nationalist, as some have argued him to be, abhorred with Sistani's traitorous ways to the Safavid Iranian Empire? Obviously, a difficult question to answer, but I can't help but find that line of reasoning difficult to believe, in that, beyond some of his later actions that will clearly show his personal, insatiable appetite for more and more power, at the expense of anyone in his way, including the remnants of the Safavid dynasty, had Sistani granted Nadar the generalship that he so desired, it is entirely possible that Nadar would have then continued supporting Sistani and his independent kingdom of Khorasan, viewing this as his path to personal gain. Of course, this was never to be. Instead, landing us into a fragmented Khorasan, with Nadar and Sistani situated as enemies, but at somewhat of a stalemate. With Sistani, although possessing an army four times larger than Nadar's forces, reportedly around 12,000 soldiers, he was unable or unwilling to attack Nadar at Kalat, which, 
even if he was able to successfully achieve, would have likely been ruinous to his army in terms of casualties. And Nader, with his small force, unable to do anything more than harass some of Sistani's possessions, while also fighting off the other surrounding warlords and the Uzbek raiders that, as usual, repeatedly try their luck at siphoning off plunder all along northeastern Iran. Accordingly, at this point, I tend to doubt that the now 38-year-old Nader was wrestling with any notions of reviving the Iranian Empire. In my mind, this was still very much a fight for survival. And what Nader needed was a way to break the stalemate. The answer for which came into view in 1726, in the form of Shah Tamas II, the aforementioned Safavid prince who escaped from Isfahan while it was under siege in 1722, who, since disappearing from the besieged capital, destined to fall to the Hotax, later reappeared on the map far to the north in the city of Tabriz in northwestern Iran, where he proclaimed himself Shah of the now-defunct Safavid Iranian Empire, gaining lukewarm support from some of the people in the area, including the Kizilbash, who may have had their reservations about what the Safavid monarchs had become, yet still preferred this to Afghan rulers, who in their eyes held no legitimacy at all. Tamasp, again, gaining some support, but only being able to gather a relatively small army, estimated in the mid-thousands at most, not nearly enough to stand his ground against the three biggest threats facing Iran at this time. As mentioned earlier, the invading Ottomans and Russians that were taking over and splitting northwestern Iran between them, the Russians also pushing further into north-central Iran, which forced Tazmap to lead his troops 500 kilometers southeast to the city of Kazvin. And of course, the new rulers of Persia, the Hotaks, who saw the reappearance of this Safavid renegade as a direct threat to their existence. As a result, sending an army to stamp out the self-proclaimed king, who was again forced to flee from the chasing Afghan army. Tamasp, left with few viable options, in 1725 opting to lead his army eastwards, across northern Iran to the city of Astarabad, today called Gorgan, situated near the southeastern tip of the Caspian Sea, the city and lands under the sway of a warlord, by the name of Fath Ali Khan of the Qajar clan, who, for all appearances sake, asserted himself to be a firm Safavid loyalist, welcoming Tamasp into the region while promising substantial military aid, including a huge force of Qajar warriors to help the outcast Shah regain his empire. With this significant contribution, the Safavid army count increasing to about 20,000. Tamasp and Fath Ali Khan then aligning on the initial steps forward towards this lofty goal, deciding it was too soon to attempt liberating the heart of Persia, instead looking towards the neighboring region of Khorasan. Wagering that in conquering these lands and wrestling them from the control of Malik Mahmud Sistani and the other warlords therein, that this would allow their ultimate goal, the reconquest of Iran to gain momentum while rallying allies to their banner. Thus bringing us to the fateful point at which Nader became linked with Shah Tamasp, who together with Fath Ali Khan, 
began marching their army through Khorasan in early 1726, en route to the city of Mashhad. As expected, some of the independent regional warlords and some previously allied with Sistani bowing to Tamasp, given the sizable army at his back, with Nader being among the most noteworthy. Viewing Tamasp's arrival on the scene as his vaulting point to elevate his stature, and throwing all his available support behind the throneless monarch. This being a contribution of roughly 3,000 exceptionally trained and disciplined warriors added to the Shah's army. Tamasp, in return, rewarding Nader with a high ranking position within his army that by this point had swelled to 30,000 troops. This large force proceeding to march unopposed through Khorasan and lay siege to the city of Mashhad by the early autumn of 1726, where Nader's adversary, Malak Mahmud Sistani, was holed up. And while we have a good idea of the size of Tamasp's army, now bolstered by Fath Ali's and Nader's contributions, as mentioned totaling approximately 30,000, Unfortunately, sources don't provide much detail as to the number of defenders that Sistani had behind the walls of Mashhad. Although it appears that a great deal of attrition had occurred to his available manpower, with a number of the alliances he had built unraveling, changing over, or disassociating with Sistani in view of the Safavid army that had entered the region. Sistani's count dwindling down from about 12,000 to maybe somewhere in the realm of three to 5,000 defenders, significantly smaller than what the Safavids were fielding. However, still, a defending contingent sufficient for holding off a larger army for a considerable period of time, especially since Tamasp only had a handful of artillery pieces that could be used for battering Mashad's fortifications, and he didn't want to risk heavy losses by storming the city meaning that it was anticipated that this would turn into a long-winded siege. However, as things slowly progressed, a couple of interesting events occurred early on that allowed Nader to gain immense favor with his king. In October, roughly one month into the siege, Nader's men intercepted communications emerging out of Mashhad from Sistani, intended for Tamas's supposedly faithful top general Fath Ali Khan, uncovering a plot and a budding alliance between the two that would have left Tamasp as nothing more than a puppet or eliminated out of the picture entirely. Nader immediately bringing this to the attention of Tamasp, who, despite Nader's pragmatic protests to spare Fath Ali's life for the time being, pointing to the potential fallout with the Qajar soldiers which accounted for more than half of the Safavid army, Tamas promptly had Fath Ali Khan executed. And while Nader was concerned by the lack of foresight and the rashness of Tamas's actions, since that event could have very well caused their army to disintegrate right then and there, fortunately, they were able to somehow smooth things over and retain the Qajar troops. Shortly afterwards, followed by Nader opening up his own line of secret communications with the commander of Sistani's forces, shrewdly negotiating a deal that in December saw the defenders open up the gates of the city to the Safavids and stand down, 
allowing Tamasp and Nader to waltz in and capture Mashad, imprisoning the traitorous Malak Mahmud Sistani, who would be executed about a year later. Nader, winning huge accolades in Tamasp's eyes, having not only secured Mashad in a bloodless takeover, but also by adding to the strength of the Safavid forces, since the deal struck with the defenders would have also necessitated their future service in the Shah's army, giving us a glimpse of the savvy type of negotiations that Nader would become known for throughout his career, frequently turning defeated foes into willing allies. For all his efforts, Tamas rewarding Nader with another promotion, to that of Kurchi Bashi, the head of the royal guard, one of the highest ranking officers within his army, just below the commander-in-chief, a posting that was vacant for the time being, given Fath Ali's unceremonious removal. Also bestowing Nader with a new name, Tamasp Kuli Khan, meaning slave or devotee of Tamasp, a title of great honor since this now linked Nader with the name of the Safavid Shah. However, as gratifying as this would have been, along with the conquest of Mashhad, there was still much more to be done in terms of securing the wider region of Khorasan, because there remained a number of competing priorities that needed to be dealt with. The unruly warlords in the area that still needed to be brought to heel, the city of Mashhad, now their base of operations that needed to be protected, and the resurgent threat that the Abdali Afghan tribe presented that you may remember from earlier in the episode, had 10 years back conquered the city of Herat, and that were again making incursions to attempt expanding their fledgling kingdom into southern Khorasan. A threat that needed to be squashed before it gained further momentum, sparking Shah Tamasp, accompanied by his favorite commander, Nader, to march out from Mashhad in August 1727 to put a stop to the renewed Abdali push. However, with one rather significant problem, in that, at least in terms of numbers, the Safavid army was spread quite thin, given all the priorities that they were dealing with, only allowing Tamas ben Nader to carve out a portion of their available 30,000 plus forces to embark on this campaign, marching southwards with 8,000 soldiers at their backs, aiming towards the strategic objective of taking over the Abdali fortress at Sangan, a small city about 300 kilometers south of Mashhad and 200 kilometers west of the city of Herat, the heart of the Abdali kingdom. And while Tamas ben Nader realized that their adversary had potentially thousands more soldiers to call on than they did, dwarfing the 8,000 that they were bringing with them, despite being fewer, one distinct advantage that the Safavids enjoyed was in firepower, dragging a number of heavy cannons behind the column, but also in terms of smaller armed gunpowder weapons. Tamasp, at the urging of Nader, having spent a great deal of the plunder they had acquired since the conquest of Mashhad on modernizing their forces, arming the majority with muskets, although one drawback being that, unlike Nader's group, the bulk of these Safavid troops were largely inexperienced with such weapons, having received, at most, only about six months training in their use. Nonetheless, as the Safavids moved southwards, 
It appears that Nather quickly took charge of the situation. His commanding physical presence and deep baritone voice overshadowing that of his king, who for the time being was all too happy to let his skilled and undoubtedly self-assured commander to take control of things. Nather proceeding to drive his army southwards through aggressive marches, realizing that their key to victory in this campaign, beyond their advantage in firepower, would be surprising their foe through quick tactical maneuvering. A campaign which Nather's chief biographer, Mirza Mehdi Khan Astarabadi, puts best when he states, His army advanced like a flame that consumes all before it. He led his soldiers without intermission and held in common with them the toil and danger of these fatiguing marches. And as referenced, this strategy working exceptionally well allowing Nadar and Tamasp to easily take over two smaller forts before reaching Sangan in early September, which also quickly fell due to the following. First, because the Abdali Afghans, not anticipating the speed of the Safavid advance nor the boldness of their attack, had failed to adequately prepare and bolster Sangan's defenses, which was lightly garrisoned with probably no more than 1,000 defenders. Second, upon unleashing the punishing Safavid barrage of cannon fire, the weight and stress of the bombardment, felt by both the Persian inhabitants and the Abdali defenders alike, added fuel to inflame the already unstable situation within the city, causing some of the Persian inhabitants to rise up in revolt against the occupiers, thereby contributing to the third factor, Nader's ability to interpret the rapidly evolving situation and pivot accordingly, taking advantage of the chaos within the city to personally lead a force of cavalry that managed to seize one of the entrances to the city, allowing the Safavid troops to pour in and ruthlessly put the Abdali to the sword. Bringing us to the events that we covered at the very start of this episode, shortly after this victory, with Safavid scouts bringing urgent news to Nader and Tamasp in the days that followed, reporting that a large Abdali army, 20,000 strong, was en route from the south, approaching Sangan to recapture the city, outnumbering Tamasp and Nader's army nearly 3 to 1, since the Safavids would have undoubtedly experienced some casualties to their original number of 8,000 along their campaign path so far. Now, at this juncture, it's worth noting that this is a response that would have typically forced most commanders to beat a hasty retreat in the face of such overwhelming odds. But Nather wasn't like most commanders. And instead of moving back, unbelievably, he led his troops forward, intending to take the Abdali head-on, blocking their passage to the city in what would later be called the Battle of Sangan. That occurred near a small village 20 kilometers just south of the city, Nather preferring this relatively open landscape over the fortress in Sangan, which had been heavily damaged by his artillery. Wait though, open lands, you might be wondering? Won't this work to the Abdali's advantage? Especially considering that the approaching Afghan foe, beyond outnumbering them greatly, clearly excelled in cavalry-based warfare? And yes, I was thinking that as well. But interestingly, Nather wanted them to attack. 
his strategic military genius on full display, having designed the battlefield to enhance his army's distinct advantage in firearms. With the Abdali forward contingent, consisting of 8,000 more traditionally armed cavalry, upon arriving in the area in early October 1727, finding a force of 7,000 Safavid troops awaiting their arrival, and a raid as follows. The bulk of their soldiers, 4,000 Safavid infantry brandishing muskets, situated in newly dug trenches surrounded by earthenwork obstacles, presumably with several artillery pieces set up behind them as well. 2,000 reserve musketeers under Shah Tamas' direct command, positioned out of view far off in the background, and finally, Nadar, personally leading a hand-picked group of cavalry that numbered somewhere between 500 to 1,000 to be used as a roving strike force. And while 12,000 more Abdali troops were mere days away approaching Sangan, it was their forward group of 8,000 cavalry who found the Safavids assembled as mentioned. However, instead of waiting for the rest of their army to arrive, the impatient Abdali commanders apparently found squashing their opposition too attractive of an opportunity to resist, expecting to run them through easily, thus immediately ordering a full-out assault, but quickly learning that this was a very different Safavid army than those they had encountered in previous years. With the Safavid musketeers standing firm in their well-dug-in positions, headlined by Nader's exceptionally trained soldiers and officers, that like a well-tuned machine and unfazed by the repeated and menacing Abdali cavalry charges, answered the charging Afghan horsemen with volleys of lead, along with overhead blasts from the cannons. Granted, as mentioned earlier, there were a number of relatively inexperienced musketeers within the Safavid ranks. So when Nader saw that one of these units was being hard-pressed, threatening to break, he would lead the Safavid cavalry in to bite deeply into the attacking Abdali horsemen, reasserting his infantry's defensive positions. Tirelessly doing this, while shouting out thunderous encouragements and threats to his troops, whatever worked in the moment to keep the Safavid forces intact and at the ready. The energy behind the repeated Abdali assaults fading losing steam into the second day of battle, having made barely any progress, with little to show for their attacks beyond hundreds of slain Afghan troops and horses that littered the battlefield. A mental image that makes me think of a quote by the American historian Stanley Weintraub, who wrote this somber factoid referring to the grisly trench warfare of World War I. On both sides in 1915, there would be more dead on any single day than yards gained in the entire year. A sobering reality that also has applicability here in the Battle of Sangan, at least, that is, with one side sending wave after wave to be brutally cut down by the musket and cannon fire, and like in World War I, the attackers only being able to resume an attack when more troops were brought up to the front lines to replace those that had fallen. A notion applicable to the Abdali, who also sent in their newly arrived units to try their luck at breaking the Safavids, and almost succeeding in the endeavor. At one point, likely towards the fourth day of battle, the Afghan cavalry assailing the exhausted, 
and nearly overwhelming the worn down defenders, only saved by Nader calling upon Tamasp to finally lead the fresh reserve troops in to prevent a total collapse. This last minute key move, breaking the morale of the Abdali to continue on, who had enough and fell back in retreat, limping all the way back to the city of Harat, bringing the hard-fought Battle of Sangan to an end. Four exhausting days of brutal and bloody clashes, with the Safavids emerging victorious. And while historical accounts provide few details on the number of casualties experienced on both sides, one can infer from the sources that the losses were particularly heavy among the Abdali Afghans, most likely in the low thousands, in contrast to hundreds amongst the Safavids. A spectacular victory engineered by Nader, and given the scale of the encounter, one that would have undoubtedly entrenched the notion in Nader's mind that firearms would be central to his and his army's future ambitions. Dual fates that were very likely intertwined in his mind. Although of note is that this hard-fought engagement also took the steam out of the Safavid advance, with Tamas ben Nader agreeing to leave a garrison at Sangan before returning the bulk of the army back to Mashhad to rest and recalibrate, in the goal of making ready a larger Safavid army to invade Herat and erase the Abdali threat for good, knowing that it had only been paused for now. Upon returning to Mashhad in triumph towards late 1727, Tamas rewarding Nader with the high command he had long been seeking, naming him commander-in-chief of the entire Safavid army, a seismic achievement for the now 39-year-old Nader, not only given his bleak and insignificant status during his youth, but also understanding that, less than two years prior, he had been one rogue warlord among many, yet again locked in a struggle for survival in Khorasan. The pendulum of Nader's fortunes had clearly swung back for the positive, having won huge accolades as Tamasp's favorite subject. But, remember the dysfunction of the Safavid royal court, and the poor caliber of heirs it had produced, raised in the lap of luxury in their ostentatious harems, fully immersed in internal political intrigues? All of this which played a fundamental role in the recent collapse of the Safavid Iranian empire? Well, Tamasp, despite having escaped Isfahan and raised an army, was still a product of that environment, and in addition to not being an especially skilled military leader, was impetuous, at times behaving in an unhinged manner, suspicious of all those around him. Although of note is that we can't blame him fully for this, as this was sometimes warranted, as seen with his previous top general the traitorous Fath Ali, that Tazmap had previously executed. And following the Safavid victory at Sangan, also awarding Nader with the top command post, it appears that Tamasp began viewing the ambitious Nader with increased suspicion, in part due to the whisperings of other advisors that were growing jealous of the immense authority that Nader had gained. A strained and rather tense relationship developing between the two men. Certainly, not helped by Nader not being shy about owning the recent victories at Sangan and the conquest of Mashhad. Because, as I'm sure you can tell by now, in addition to his imposing appearance and voice, 
neither had a strong personality. Not the type of person to entertain the foolish designs of others, no matter how lofty their stature. And regardless of his new name, Tamasp Kulikan, meaning the servant of Shah Tamasp, he wasn't about to let his king take undeserved credit for his victories. Nor accept future campaigns that would undo all the success they had built so far. With Nader staunchly refusing to go along with Tamasp's impatient demands to march directly on Isfahan, arguing that the Afghan Abdali tribe needed to be dealt with first, and all of Khorasan secured firmly under their thumb, otherwise risk losing their base of operations while abroad. Nader's reluctance to bend to the will of his shah quickly inflaming the tense relationship between the two men that would, in short order, ignite into open hostilities. In the next episode, part three of our series on Nader Shah, we'll dive into the details of this conflict and its outcome. On the surface, not really changing anything officially, Tamasp still reigning as Shah of Iran, of a Safavid government in exile, and Nather retaining his subordinate role as the commander-in-chief. But underneath this shroud, turning the dynamics between king and general completely on its head, affirming Nather under no uncertain terms as the real power behind the throne and Tamasp as his puppet. By his own hand, unfettering Nather from the figurative royal handcuffs, and bestowing him with practically no restraints to begin reshaping the Safavid army into a frighteningly fierce and dynamic force, and most importantly, loyal to Nader alone. Including merciless training and drilling, modernization and innovations in the form of an elite class of musketeers called the Jazayirchi that would become the central core of his formidable army that Nader puts to devastating use to tame the entirety of Khorasan before finishing what he had started with the Abdali Afghans, freeing him to then lead the Safavids against the current rulers of Iran, the Hotak dynasty, presiding over a series of brilliant battlefield victories in an amazingly short period of time, restoring the Safavid dynasty to power in 1729. But of course, with Nader firmly holding the reins in the background. This and more to come in the next episode of the Warlords of History podcast. If you want to support the podcast, there are many ways you can do so. You can tell your family and friends about the show. Please rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you happen to access the show on. You can follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. And lastly, you can head on over to the show's website, warlordsofhistory.com, where I'll include some additional info, like images and maps pertaining to this episode for your viewing pleasure, and where you can also reach out to me with any thoughts, questions, or suggestions for improvement. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Theme music from audionautics.com.